Well, today we begin our fall series. It's the fourth of a four-part look at the letter to the Romans, which was duly authored, as we believe the Bible is, by a human, Paul, and by God himself. And if you remember, over the past four years, we've examined Romans 1 to 4 back in the fall of 2017, Romans 5 to 8 in the fall of 2018, Romans 9 to 11 in the summer of 2019. We've called those series Encounter, uh, excuse me, Anchored in the Gospel, Transformed by the Gospel, and Called to the Gospel, respectively. And today, we're beginning the fourth and final series entitled Living Out the Gospel, and it covers Romans 12 to 16. It deals with the application of the gospel's power in the lives of Jesus' followers who are members of his church, his holy people. Here are some themes that we're going to cover about the gospel. Its effect on our relationships within God's family, its effect on our use of spiritual gifts, our response to government authorities, the centrality of love in a dying world, preferring others' needs and views over our own, the damage of judging other people's motives, the priority of gospel witness, and the blessing of diversity in the body of Christ. I didn't make those up. Not for fall 2020. They're right in Romans 12 to 16. But today we're going to start our series in unique fashion. Since we've covered the first 11 chapters over the course of three years and covering a whole host of topics, there's quite an extensive foundation for our series. And so in light of that, I'd like to spend this morning preparing us for the fall, September through the end of November. And in order to do so, I'd like to give you an overview of where we've been and what that provides for where we're going. So yes, I'm going to be preaching 11 chapters this morning. I've never done that. Sit back and enjoy the ride. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Romans I hope you have a copy of the scriptures, a hard copy preferably. I'll get to that in just a moment. If you don't have one, we'd be happy to give one to you as a gift. Our hosts have that here. Just raise your hand and we'll put that in your hand or on loan if you have a Bible at home and didn't bring that. Uh, Romans is where we're at. At the end of the service, as you exit, you're going to be receiving a very helpful summary of Romans 9 to 11. Look at those bright colors there. This will be Great, And this will cover the passages that we have explored over the course of the past three years. You'll find this handy. So individually or as couples, I would encourage you to take one. We'll have that online as well, available for you. You just need to be signed up for our Grace Polaris emails, gracepolaris.org slash update. And you'll be getting that in digital form this week. Thanks to Tyler Mitchell for his hard work in putting that together. Tyler works for us in communications. So in light of that, you don't have to write everything down that you're going to hear this morning. You might write down a few key thoughts or references. You can do that on the back of your worship program. And again, I hope you uh, pick up one of those as you come in. Romans chapter 1. If you have a hard copy, all the better. Here's why. Research actually shows that we read print material differently than we do on our devices that we read more intently print material, that we read for longer. More importantly, perhaps for this morning, a hard copy allows us to see the context, usually a couple of chapters when we open up the Bible, and devices don't really enable us to do that. And this morning, in particular, context and flow 
is important in order to understand the message of Romans. But having said that, whatever you have, device or hard copy, pull that out and follow along in the letter to the Romans. Romans, as many have noted, is the most comprehensive summary in the Bible of the gospel, the good news. Romans tells us who God is, who we are, why we're lost, what God has done, who Jesus is, what salvation is, who the Holy Spirit is, how he changes us, to whom we belong, and how we should live. Some have said that Romans is the Fort Knox of the gospel. Paul writes this good news summary to the inhabitants of Rome, the capital city of the world 2,000 years ago, and we now live in the capital city of Buckeye land of Ohio 2,000 years later, and it's just as relevant for us as it was for them. What is that gospel? Well, in a sentence, John Stott writes, the good news is the gospel of God about Christ, according to Scripture, for the nations, unto the obedience of faith, and for the sake of the name. A great summary of Romans. More specifically, the gospel is what God has done through Jesus Christ in order to redeem creation and to reconcile himself, God, to a people, us a people who will declare his glory to the world. And Jesus stands at the center of that. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation to the Father. Jesus is the heart of the gospel. Jesus is the promised Messiah of Israel, the Son of God. He's the Lord. And it's what Jesus has done, not just who he is, that makes the gospel the good news that it is. So that's our background. Let's dive into the wonderful riches of the gospel in the letter to the Romans. Think of this as basic theology of the gospel. On the back of your worship program, you have that outline. You can take some notes here and follow along. The first point is from Romans chapter 1 through chapter 4, anchored in the gospel. And here's our key question for this section. How does God justify sinners who deserve the wrath of God? How does God justify sinners who deserve the wrath of God? And if there's one big word for this section, it's the word justification. If I turn to this uh, summary that you'll get, we read the following about Romans 1 to 4. In our hearts, we hunger for true and good news. We seek solid ground. We long for an anchor. And an anchor is precisely what God gives us. At the heart of the New Testament, in an essay to cosmopolitan believers, the Apostle Paul reveals the ultimate anchor for our lives. It answers the questions that dog us. It offers the solution that attracts us. It reveals the foundation God embodies for us. What is that anchor? It is the good news of what and whom God has sent our way. Yet it's more than an answer. It's a person. He's the only anchor that holds. Paul begins Romans chapter 1 by outlining the fact that he is a missionary as well as a theologian. He's taking the gospel to the nations because God has called him to go with the gospel to those nations. This is a missionary theology. If there's one key word to summarize Romans chapter 1, as Paul introduces his letter, it's the word gospel. And we see that especially in verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1. Paul writes, "...for I am not ashamed of the gospel." 
because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Key word, Romans 1, gospel. And Paul introduces that here. Later on in chapter 1, Paul begins to address the problem of the nations, of the Gentiles, including most of us in here. And as we move to Romans chapter 2, he addresses his own people, his fellow Jews. And he says that not only are the Gentiles guilty before God, but you moralistic fellow Jews of my people, you are guilty too. Key word of Romans chapter 2 is the word guilt. We see that in verse 5. Romans 2.5 says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. No matter how good your life is, no matter how much you attempt to please God, you can't, you're guilty, Jew and Gentile alike. Key word Romans 2, guilt. Romans 3 makes the case that that's true of the whole world. But Romans 3 makes a pivot because it describes the answer of God to the guilt of the world, including you and me. And the answer, key word for Romans 3, is grace. Gospel chapter 1, guilt chapter 2, grace chapter 3. Here's what we read in Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us. And all are justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The grace of God is displayed in Jesus Christ for the offer of salvation to the world. Paul describes in grandeur what that means for you and for me. Gospel chapter 1, guilt chapter 2, grace chapter 3. And Paul concludes this section with an example from the life of Abraham of what our response ought to be. And it's the word faith. We find that in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Romans 4, 5, however, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. When Paul uses the word work here, he's talking about our efforts to somehow please God on our own, to somehow do enough or show enough to God that he'll say, you're okay. You're good. Nothing more is needed. But Paul says no faith is needed. As one writer says, faith is not primarily agreement with a set of doctrines, but trust in a person. Believing is not something we do in the sense of works, but is always a response, an accepting of the gift God holds out to us in his grace. Big theme for Paul in Romans 1 to 4, is the theme of justification. And here's what justification is. It's how God declares sinners righteous by his grace, through their faith, in the work of Jesus on their behalf. Jesus is our substitute and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus died for us so that we might live for him. There it is, Romans 1 to 4, anchored in the gospel, how God justifies us. From there, we move to the second section, transformed by the gospel, Romans chapter 5 through 8. 
And the key question here in this section is this. How does God change justified individuals into holy reflections of his son? How does God change justified individuals into holy reflections of his son? Big word for this section is the word sanctification. It means the process of being made holy. As we read in that same guy that you can pick up on your way out, rescued, accepted, redeemed, exonerated. These words offer an inexpressible relief to anyone in need. That's true in the physical realm, but even more incredible in the spiritual realm. And that's precisely what Romans 5 to 8 declares is true for those who place their trust in Jesus Christ. God grants every believer a new status, a new belonging, new desires, new empowerment, new security, and a new hope, a total transformation from the inside out. And how that happens, Paul describes in Romans 5 to 8. In Romans chapter 5, the key word is Christ. He's the one who makes that change. We see that especially in verse 8 of Romans 5. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Many would claim to do many good things for someone else, even at great sacrifice. But Jesus Christ dies for his enemies, you and me, those who stand with our fists shaking at God. Keyword Romans 5, Christ. We see that again in verse 19 of that same chapter. For just as through the disobedience of one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, you and me, so also through, through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Paul moves into Romans chapter 6 then and describes this exchange, this death to sin and self, this being alive to Christ. Key word in Romans chapter 6 is the word change. We see that perhaps foremost in verse 13, where Paul writes to the readers, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. You're all a slave, Paul says. The question is, who's your master? It used to be sin and self, but now your master is Jesus Christ. Let him work the change in your life. From there, Paul proceeds on to chapter 7, a, a great chapter and often confusing for people. In chapter 7, Paul has a kind of flashback where he looks back on his life as a Jew without Christ and looks back at the situation of Jews and people in general who are without Christ, yet trying to please God on their own. And he expresses the futility of those efforts. The key word in Romans chapter 7 is the word power. Who has the power for me to live as I ought to before God? And Paul expresses the despair of trying to do so on his own. But as chapter 7 ends, you can tell Paul is coming to an answer because there is an answer to that question of power. And we find that in chapter 8 of Romans, the key word is spirit, as in the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 8. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. He hints at that back in chapter 7, verse 6, when he writes, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. All your efforts, all your standards will fail, but the Spirit living in you will succeed. Keyword Romans chapter 8 is the word Spirit. Romans 5, Christ. Romans 6, change. Romans 7, power. Romans 8, spirit. And we see that even in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans chapter 5 through 8, the question of sanctification, which means how God transforms believers in Jesus Christ to look like the character of Jesus. And it's a lifetime work of you and of me abiding in the Spirit as he does his work. That's how we're transformed by the gospel, Romans 5 to 8. Third section of Romans, beginning in chapter 9, moving through chapter 11, called to the gospel. And the key question, as we saw last summer, summer of 2019, is this. Who has God called to be part of his new covenant? Who has God called to be his gospel people? And of all the words that we could use to summarize this section, this more than any does so. Sovereignty. It's the question of who's in control, who's driving the car, who's in charge of the script of history. And the answer is a resounding, God is. We read on the back of this pamphlet that you'll get, Long before he, God, called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God was working to bless all the peoples of the earth. His divine offer was good news for his first chosen people, the Israelites, but it wasn't exclusive to them. When Jesus opened the door to a restored relationship with God, he fulfilled God's promise to Abraham made long ago, a kingdom invitation to Jew and Gentile alike. God's work throughout history has culminated in a spiritual nation, a people fit together from every time, place, and background, and stretching farther than the eye can see. And that grand plan includes us right alongside the people he chose to bless all the nations of the earth. This invitation to join God's family through Christ is good news for everyone who is called to the gospel. Romans 9 to 11 is a bit of a conundrum for many people. It's a thick, dense description of the plan of God throughout history to call a people to himself. Romans 9 begins that, and the key word in that chapter is the word promise. Promise. We see that especially in Romans 9, verse 8, where we read, In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Paul says again to his fellow Jews, don't put all your confidence in your DNA, in your ethnicity, for God is calling a people together for himself who respond to the promise as Abraham did, and you must as well. Again, in Romans chapter 9, we see that God is sovereign over all things, and he, not us, is in the driver's seat of history. Well, does that take us out of the equation? Does that make us mere puppets? 
may it never be. Romans 10 answers that question. For those who have been called to the gospel are also called with the gospel to go to the nations with the good news of Jesus Christ, asking for a response. We find that in some verses that many of you may be familiar with. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. You see, when we've heard the message, we respond to it. And then we go to others and say, do you know, have you heard what God has done? Finally, in Romans chapter 11, Paul broadens out again to answer this question of Jews and Gentiles and to whom has God come? To whom does God offer this gospel? And Paul describes in great detail there how the plan of God and the script of God is working out in history. Key word of Romans 11 is the word purpose. And at the end of that great section, we read beginning in verse 30, Paul, God's answer to the question. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Romans 9, promise. Romans 10, witness. Romans 11, purpose. The whole section describing the sovereignty of God in our lives and in all creation. Sovereignty is the plan, the power, the prerogative of God to design all of creation, all of history for his glory. And God is the conductor of it all, And God includes us in this orchestra of praise. And perhaps his favorite melody is that of mercy. Called to the gospel, Romans 9 to 11. Romans 1 to 4, anchored in the gospel, how God justifies sinners. Romans 5 to 8, transformed by the gospel, how God changes those who have been declared righteous. Romans 9 to 11 called to the gospel who God includes in his gospel people. And we come then to Romans 12, living out the gospel. And the key question for us this fall, beginning next week, is this. What does it mean to live in light of what God has done for us? And the key word is holiness. Holiness is God's perfect moral nature. And holiness is God's will for our lives as followers of Jesus. In Romans 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16, in very practical terms, Paul, God, lays out what it means to be holy in our lives. But before he gets to Romans chapter 12, Paul concludes with a grand crescendo of all that he has written in Romans 1 to 11 for he can hardly fathom the greatness of God and the goodness of God to us. Romans 11, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. 
Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. As John Calvin said, the world is the theater of God's splendor. And you and I get to be part of it. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of individuals, for the formation of a people, and for the restoration of the cosmos. Salvation, formation, restoration. For the past few moments, we've been looking at the forest of Romans, and I trust that we haven't gotten too bogged down in the trees. This is an overview for where we're going. And I have three points of practical application for you. First of all, pick up a copy of this overview as you leave. Each of you who came by yourself, couples, if you could take one, I, I don't know how many we have left. I think we have plenty. I think this will be extremely helpful as we journey this fall. Second, I want to give you a challenge. All of us have 168 hours in the next week. My challenge is to spend between half an hour and an hour reading Romans 1 to 11 in one sitting. We've tested it out. A godly couple in our church read. He, by his own admission, a slow reader. She, a fast reader. She read the whole book of Romans in 32 minutes. He read in 56 minutes. That's a half hour to an hour. If you're in the middle, there's 45 or a little less, if you just read Romans 1 to 11. This week, find a chunk of time and read in preparation for our journey this fall. Third, be here. Be here next week. Be here this fall. Make it a priority to be in our worship services online if you have to, in person if you can, as we see what God has done in the gospel. I can hardly think of a more timely section of scripture to tell us how we ought to live in such a time as this. I'd like to close our time with two pointed questions. These past few moments may have seemed like a bit of a cognitive or informational Bible study, but, but the book of Romans really has to land personal, transformative for us. Because the gospel is not primarily to be admired, though it's spectacular. The gospel is primarily to be embraced because it, it, it offers good news to a desperately lost and needy world. Don't just sit there. Take it. Here are two diagnostic questions. First, am I reconciled to the God who has done this for me, for us, for the world? Have I personally, consciously, definitively embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do I know God through Jesus? Because here's the deal. Next week we begin Romans chapter 12. And Romans 12 and following is full of all kinds of commands and instructions and proper responses. It's, it's what we call the imperatives of the gospel. What God would have us, tells us to do. But the truth is you cannot live Romans 12 to 16 if you aren't reconciled to the God of Romans 1 to 11. Romans 1 to 11 tells us what God has done 
so that what he does in us can be lived out to see. Are you reconciled to the God of the gospel? Second question. If I'm reconciled to God, how then should I live? And that's what Romans 12 to 16 is all about. And if you know God through Jesus Christ, then you and I will be desperately interested to find out how he wants us to live. What about you? What are your answers to those two questions? Do you know God? That's the first order of business. And knowing God isn't a contract. It's not a negotiation. Knowing God is a surrender to God, the God of the gospel. It means saying, no longer my way, God, but yours. No longer trying to justify myself, to save myself, but your salvation in Jesus Christ, God. Knowing God means laying down our rationalizations, our excuses, our attempts to say we're okay, and taking what God gives us in a gift in Jesus Christ and saying, your way, it's the only way. And once you've embraced that, once you've embraced the gospel of God, then you're ready to hear, to read, and to respond to the how to live of Romans 12 to 16. And Paul begins in Romans 12, 1 with the word, therefore, in light of all that's true of what God has done for me and you, this then is how you respond. Next week, it begins in earnest in one of the most important seasons of your life. The next one, the one that lies right before us. And the same is true for me. And I can't wait. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your work in our lives. And we thank you that long before we saw each other, you were about writing the script of history and salvation. And that somehow, some way, you included your salvation offer to us. Thank you for the person of Jesus who is the ultimate embodiment, the ultimate picture of who you are and what we need. Thank you for how he lived. Thank you for the ways that he walked and talked among us. And thank you for those who have followed him, including the Apostle Paul, who describes what it looks like to live for him. I pray that in this unique season of history of our lives of this year, that you would find us to be a people eager to know you, to love you, and to do what is right and good and true in such a world as this. Thank you for the letter to the Romans. May it become a letter to those in Columbus in how we live for you, Jesus. You are who we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.